Welcome to the HR Chat Podcast, bringing the best of the HR and talent communities to you. Welcome to another episode of the HR Chat Show. In this HR Chat episode, we're going to hear from Mark Stelsner, founder and managing principal at IA. Mark is a highly sought after voice in the industry, and he's been featured by the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, CNN, and NPR, among others. As founder and managing principal of IA, Mark champions complex HR transformational initiatives, proving the business case, finding fit providers, and supporting businesses through every step of the transformational life cycle. He'll be addressing the topic of creating the business case for HR transformation. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bill. Pleasure to be here. Looking forward to the conversation. This is one of my favorite topics, as you know. So beyond my reintroduction there, Mark, please introduce yourself a bit more. Tell our listeners about your career history and your role at IA. Thank you. Yes. Um, so I'm the founder and managing principal. I had the pleasure of founding the firm about 14 years ago and have about 25 years of HR transformation. But I, I had a non-traditional path in arriving at this career. I actually was a student of aerospace engineering um, and had a strong science and engineering background and found myself, of course, in the enviable position, as we all do, of working with just a wide litany of people. And as I ended my collegiate career uh, with significant debt, which we can talk about, (laughs) it was time to find a job. And I always happened to find opportunities. And this is a time when aerospace was not as popular as it is today. So uh, if I can go into a wormhole, I would probably make a different decision given the Tremendous interest in investments that are happening in space today. But but nonetheless, you know, many, many years ago, I took a first job and I took a first job that was a bit of a stretch assignment for me, which was assessing the viability of call centers for Hewlett Packard. Um, it was well above my skills. There was a tremendous human aspect and technological aspect to it. Um, I had the pleasure of working with a number of leaders at HP, and and from that, really, a career in HR was born, looking at processes, assessing the viability of certain approaches, looking at the way in which technology can improve a human's performance. And from there, I moved to an HR technology company uh, in the mid-90s, IPO'd that company, um, and continued on and on. And I've lived in really every facet of um, the the organization, meaning I've lived as a provider, I've lived as a practitioner, and I've lived as a strategic advisor. But again, for uh, 14 years or so, we've led this awesome uh, HR transformational consultancy called IAA, and we have the great pleasure of working with some of the most formidable and complex organizations in the world. We'll be right back after this message from Espresso. The workplace is now more than just work. It's a place where people find community, belonging, and a bigger vision and mission. That's why Espresso built the first culture benefits platform designed to make heroes out of HR teams while delivering a connective employee experience that people love. Looking to create more ways for your people to connect and in ways that positively impact business outcomes? Visit Espresso.com. That's E-S-P-R-E-S-A.com. We're total well-being and culture benefits that make heroes out of HR teams. 
let's just throw a, a, a small question at you then at this point, Mark. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> as we enter a new decade, we're recording this interview in the middle of uh, January 2020. Can you share one or two of the most dramatic shifts you see happening in the HR tech uh, benefit space today? Sure. And we're, we're, we're going to be writing and talking about this extensively over the course of the year. But there, there's been a lot of conversation coming out of the last decade and probably the prior decades on the war on talent. We're shifting that conversation. We see that instead of a war on talent, um, we're entering an age where it's it's a war on skills. And if you think about it, you know, each of us have inherent skills. We're going through continuous education. We occupy roles. Skilled humans who occupy roles are assembled in teams, and skilled teams produce work. And it sounds like a fairly logical assembly when we put it into that construct. But when we look at actually how work is done, how work is effectuated in organizations of all shapes and sizes, work is more dynamic than it's ever been before. And so whether one is a contingent employee or a full-time employee, whether one has two jobs, has three split assignments, despite the role that they allegedly occupy as their full-time equivalency, we're finding that work is dynamic, work is fluid, and work is ever-changing. And when we think about also an intense need for increased mobility, meaning organizations in, you know, in, in reaction to the war for talent are also reacting to the dynamic changes of their outlying customers. We have organizations that are organisms now, organisms that are comprised of talented individuals. And so why this impacts HR tech and the benefit space going forward is that many organizations are starting to thoughtfully consider how they break down the supervisory hierarchy for those techies out there. If you think about every HR technology system that exists, it's foundationally built on the fact that I occupy a role and whether it's, whether it's based on a, a, a job or um, another organizational hierarchy structure, I occupy a role and I report to an individual. Well, that's not how work is done anymore. And, and, and so in an effort for continuous improvement, what we need to do now is we need to learn, we need to do, we need to rest, we need to reskill, we need to do, we need to rest, we need to reskill, we need to do. And, and, and the pacing at which this is increasing and the shifting needs as a result of the infusion of artificial intelligence and every other wonderful buzzword that people like me like to talk about is requiring organizations to think about skills taxonomy, which does not exist on a global basis. In fact, was cited by the World Economic Forum as a global risk that could create $10 trillion worth of deficit and productivity over the next 10 years. So this shift has started, is starting, and I think foundationally will change the way in which not only HR technology operates, but the way in which organizations themselves operates. In the downstream impact, if you think about benefits, and now we layer in things like anxiety and stress and what the World Health Organization called burnout. You know, what happens when burnout is a benefit? When you can raise your hand and say, I, I'm, I'm burned, I'm fried, I've worked too hard. You know, HR's understaffed, never bounced back from the rest, last recession. We're working hard out there around the world, everybody. At the end of the day, what happens to benefits? So if I'm a skilled worker, if the organizational hierarchy is going to collapse in what Accenture defined as the liquid workforce several years ago, how do we think about eligibility for benefits? How do we think about the quality of those benefits? How do we think about our beneficiaries? How do we think about how we're assembled in perhaps a multitude of organizations or a multitude of business units within organizations? And how does the legal and regulatory environment react, as which we're seeing, of course, with a lot of contingent workers, a lot of gig workers? How do they react to the fact that many of these gig workers are not benefits eligible? 
So this shift, I think, over the next decade is going to foundationally shake to the ground everything that we take for granted in terms of organizational structure, in terms of skills, taxonomy, and execution, in terms of re-education, and the actual assembly of these outputs in the underlying HR technology that we use. Perfect. Thank you very much. Now then, um, as part of this uh, interview today, I was doing my homework and I came across a really interesting blog post that you wrote a while back uh, on, on the IA site called How to Build a Business Case for Your HR Transformation, uh, which, of course, is connected very much with, uh, with the topic you'll be speaking about at Hacking HR in, in March. You, you wrote, HR transformations require a lot of work and strategy up front before anyone in the C-suite approves a major transformation, they're going to need to hear a convincing argument. I'd like, Mark, for you to talk through the main steps needed from HR prior to taking their case to leadership. Firstly, can we can we start by, by talking about this idea of building a library of every step of the HR lifecycle and getting a view of the entire ecosystem? Yes, absolutely, thank you. And, and you know, out of necessity, versus design. HR is organized traditionally into centers of excellence or expertise with with unbelievably deep and storied domain expertise. So if we think about talent acquisition or recruiting, we think about onboarding, we think about payroll, we think about core HR or HCM, we think about total rewards, we think about broader talent management across performance, compensation, learning, and so on. What HR has done is HR has put themselves in a position of isolating those processes, deploying those processes, sometimes in isolation, sometimes in concert with their their sister business units across the life cycle. But from the employee's lens, and with with so much emphasis, as you're probably seeing today, Bill, I'm sure you're going to have other guests talking about this ill-defined notion of the employee experience. You know, there's so much emphasis now in putting the employee at the center of every of every experience. So when you talk about documenting and capturing all the information necessary for every step of the HR lifecycle. It's about breaking down those walls and barriers and actually capturing all the artifacts, all the documents, all the policies, all the enabling technologies and third-party providers who serve as an accelerant to your vision that has to be documented. And in many cases, this exercise is the first time that this has been captured. Um, We have a contest among our clients to see how many artifacts they can capture and, and an artifact could be a document, it could be a presentation, it could be a recorded video, it could be anything whatsoever that substantiates the entire hire to retire life cycle. And our winner had, I think, somewhere north of about 3,000 artifacts at this stage. So, so at the end of the day, HR, in their isolation, of course, in the, in the effective deployment of each of their specialty areas, really comes together and actually puts eyes on the entire process. And, and I'll tell you, Bill, it's a shocking output. It's a shocking volume. It's a shocking amount of disparate approaches and systems and, and, and the communications themselves that are certainly underpinning how an employee, how a manager, how a retiree, how a candidate is supposed to navigate through these myriad of technologies and processes and policies is, is a bit mind boggling, particularly for large, complex global organizations. But so the first thing we want to do is we want to put that on paper. We want to get a viewpoint. The other, the other thing I'll say and if you think about this through the lens of leadership, is HR is a servant culture. And so HR works hard. They work incredibly hard. These are dedicated professionals who have, who have elected to spend their entire life caring for the employees, retirees, and dependents um, of their organizations. 
And, and although certainly they need help and they're, and they're capable and willing of raising their voice and raising the bar to the C-suite, how the work is actually done, there's very little situational awareness in the higher order of the organization of how HR actually does what they do. There's a lot of complaining, certainly, and a lot of, a lot of conjecture that's thrown HR's way, but nonetheless, they show up every day. They make sure everyone's paid. They make sure you receive benefits, and they make sure that you're cared for. So we want to document everything, and we want to get it down, and we want to get a core repository so we can put eyes on the what and the how. Okay, thank you very much. Now I'd like you to delve more into uh, the, the second the second part of this, which is uh, this idea of mapping your current processes. Can, can you sort of give us a, a, an overview of what that looks like? I sure can. In fact, um, as I'm speaking with you today, I'm actually in the throes of doing this for a, a fascinating organization. And so if you've ever done process mapping, and I mean really forensic process mapping, this is the equivalent of being an HR private investigator. And so what you have to do is you have to take all those expert resources that I described a moment ago, find a big conference room, get as many whiteboards as you can, get snacks, make sure they're caffeinated, and, and really start to write down every single step of every single process that is in scope for transformation. We had a client, um, an interesting global client, for off-cycle payroll, meaning pay corrections that are off-cycle of the traditional payroll process. They had 1,422 unique steps. And again, if we build on our first conversation here, mapping and documenting the current processes to the nth degree to Jane logs in, Jane prints a document, Jane makes a copy of the document. Jane files that copy of the document. It gets picked up by Iron Mountain and actually FedExes it to the field. <laughs> if it's a distributed organization, to a store or to a manufacturing facility, so on and so forth. In documenting these processes, you do a couple of things. One is you have a visual that is unmistakable. We had, a, we had an instance where we showed a CFO a current process map. It was that same off-cycle process that I just described. And one of my colleagues, um, she stood at the bottom of a printout and she unrolled it. It was taller than her. It was about six feet tall by about four feet wide that showed every single step of this off-cycle payroll process. And you'll find the result to be fascinating. The CFO actually started crying, which was really interesting to us. And the reason that he broke into tears is because he thought he was a good leader. And he said this to us. He said, listen, I thought I was caring for my people. I thought my people trusted me. Payroll reported to finance in this organization. How come I didn't know? How come they didn't feel that they could be comfortable or confident enough to show me how much pain they're experiencing, why they're working nights and weekends just for the basic covering of our payroll processes? And he was determined in that moment to effectuate change. We have other clients that have, that have turned this into an art gallery. Well, they'll, they'll get very strategic about, let's say, where a C-suite member gets their coffee. And they'll actually put these process maps up on a wall to create high situational awareness again. So that what we're doing really is we're preparing the organization for that business case for change. We're finding an unbelievable number of inefficiencies. We're finding money that's not the traditional source of return on investment, like printing and shipping. You're getting the stakeholders themselves to look at this and say, well, why do we do it that way? Oh, that was something that Jim started 14 years ago, or we had an audit that showed a failed process in 2001, 
And so we do a corrective process on, on every output that we're producing. It doesn't matter what the catalyst is. At the end of the day, you now have your jumping off point. And it also infuses a sense of empowerment. You know, we're, we're a consultancy. We're an advisory firm. We don't own anything. These organizations own these outcomes. And if you want to activate an organization, do this documentation to this level of a forensic output, and they will absolutely wake up, step up and start to transform the processes and policies that they are in control of. They will also package this for immediate outcome before we present the business case. And so what you do is you have an active organization that's already starting to transform, which builds not only muscle memory, but momentum toward that final approval. Awesome, thank you. And uh, if, if you wanna build a better organization, uh, you, you need to understand what employees want, of course. How, how can HR pros capture their company's voice and, and use that voice as a catalyst for change? Certainly, and, and great question, thank you. You know, there's a number, number of, of movements that are happening across our industry in terms of how you capture the organization's voice. The more traditional is an annual engagement survey. Now we're seeing pulse surveys. So to the extent that organizations have done a decent job and that we've seen, frankly, honest and candid responses, how do we look at those qualitative and quantitative responses and actually elicit insight relative to the voice of the organization? We have, we have other clients that elect to actually engage in a new survey or new outreach or new engagement as part of their HR transformational exercise. We have a, a fascinating global petrochemical company. And what they elected to do is they elected to, at the beginning of this transformation, reach out and ask two questions to about 25% of their global population. And, and they did so across the entire employee life cycle, like we described before, across payroll and talent management and compensation, et cetera. And the question was, how critical do you believe these functions are? And if you think about it through the lens of a, a people leader, you know, uh, perhaps just a, a regular employee, regardless of hierarchy or role throughout the enterprise, regardless of you know, whether they were in manufacturing in the field or, or they were a C-suite executive, what's the criticality of, of these processes from the lens and the seat in which you occupy? And then how are we doing? So it, the criticality relative to our actual performance, what's your impression of how HR is actually supporting you? So you, you don't, you really see an HR survey, right? Where it says, hey, tell us how we're doing. And what was fascinating, like every organization, they came into this business case with a hypothesis, which is really what a business case is, is the proving of a hypothesis, a hypothesis of what their key careabouts were and what the prioritization of transformation should be. And in gathering these results, this is a very conservative organization that we're very concerned about how to justify their business case and gathering these re their results. One slide solidified an incredibly large investment with no return on investment, no documented ROI. And it was the output of this exercise, which basically showed the gap between the importance and the performance of each of the subfunctions of HR. And as a result of this, with this visual, what the C-suite did is they said, listen, we think we want to start where we're feeling the most pain. And they use quantitative analysis to actually analyze the gap between perceived expectations and perceived performance. And because the output, of course, of, of ever asking employees what they want is you better do something about it. And so they published the survey. They published the results. They published the roadmap. This roadmap was actually driven by the voice of the organization of their employees. 
And, and the resulting output um, is unbelievable. And they've grown organically and inorganically. But that one moment for that organization made the entire business case. Okay, thank you very much. Now let's let's loop all of these uh, these learnings back then and uh, and, and go for the the, the biggest uh, takeaway for our listeners, I think today, and and, and that's um, in, in one or two minutes, Mark. Maybe you can just sort of uh, summarize how, how can HR leaders then best make that business case to the C-suite for HR tech investment? Great, thank you. And and you know, some of it's going to sound silly, so. First and foremost, get copies of the last business cases from your peer group. The last five that were approved, the last five that were rejected. Part of this is form and format. And these are, these, these are self-inflicted wounds that can be avoided. If you think about the board, you think about the C-suite of an organization, they are used to consuming a tremendous amount of information in a very, very short period of time. Font structure, documentation, color scheme, PowerPoint presentation styles, all of these are distractions from the core message that you're trying to achieve. So one is learn from from what your peers have done or have not done and, and truly study how your organization consumes information because what you're going to want to do is to get them to focus on the most important information to make a very, very rapid decision. These leaders do not have time to become HR experts. They do not have time to delve deeply. That's number one. Number two is know your organization's key initiatives. So each organization has their critical initiatives or care abouts for their fiscal. What are they? Inextricably link the business case that you are trying to substantiate to those business outcomes. We did this for a large railroad recently. And, and, and a part of deconstructing their, lar- their key careabouts, what, what you're doing is you're saying, listen, either what you've published and what you've described as our key initiatives for 2020 are real or they're not real. And, and it's a funny thing to say, but in effect, if the business case provides substantiation to serve as an accelerant or an outcome of what the organization writ large has conveyed to the entire enterprise, including investors, if they're a public entity, and you could substantiate that, Leaders do not say no. And I will say this, Bill, every single business case we have ever written in our 14 years has been approved. So, so heed our advice in terms of, of get forensic, get detailed, get organized, strip away any HR parlance from your business case, think about risk, give your organizations and your leaders choice, thoughtfully consider how to thread this to key careabouts, and of course, you know, understand the the financial planning, thinking about the 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 uh, funding of the beyond the opportunity, of course, the, the 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 capital expenditure and the operating expenditure. But it's funny what we're finding today in a strong economy is that the approval of these business cases is less about the capex and the opex, and more about the opportunity cost. If the organization elects to chase initiative A, they're doing so to the detriment of B or C. But again, you can do this. We have great faith in HR, and, and HR can achieve these outcomes. Wow. Okay. I just want to uh, just want to re-emphasize something you just said there, in case our listeners missed it. Every single business case that you guys have worked on over the last fourteen years has been approved. That is staggering. Wow. Congratulations. Um, Thank you. We get some pretty cool guests on this show, ladies and gentlemen. Um, Mark, Mark, before we wrap up uh, for today, how can our listeners connect with you? And also, how can they learn more about IA? 
Certainly. Uh, please go to ia-hr.com or you can go to voiceofhr.com to learn more about our writings and our readings. Use the Google machine. You can find me on LinkedIn. I'd love to hear from your listeners. I'd love to connect and, and certainly look forward to uh, future conversations. Thanks for the opportunity to chat today. Brilliant. Well, that just leads me to say for today, Mark Stelzner, thank you very much for being a guest on this episode of the HR Chat Show. Thank you for listening to the HR Chat Podcast, brought to you by the HR Gazette.